get into part two of our series. We started a series last Sunday called Deadly Invitations, and if you missed the opening to that, I'll kind of bring you up to speed real quick. It's based on a story, or a metaphor, really, that is uh, Uncle Andy. And uh, I just got a text from one of our other elders, Andy Lawrence, who said, hey, can, can we change the name of the metaphor? <laughs> can, we do, can we do like Brother Russ or something? But it's Uncle Andy. I didn't write the book. That's what it was about. Uncle Andy, oh, there you are, Andy. I didn't know you was in this service. Yeah, so um, <laughs> I wouldn't have talked about it if I didn't know you were sitting there. I thought you were in the last service. Um, anyway, Uncle Andy is this house guest that we invite into our home, and we like Uncle Andy. We want him to be a part of our home. We invited him to be a part of our home, but there are some problems. For one, Andy has no filter. So he tends to share news and content and images and things that we really wish our kids wouldn't see and we really don't want to see ourselves, but Andy just can't help himself. Like, he just shares whatever comes to mind. Two, he tends to dominate the conversation. So it used to be we gathered around the dinner table and we shared, you know, conversation together, but now that Andy's in the house, all we ever do is just sit around and look at Andy. And three, he has this weird effect on our emotions. I mean, it's not, I mean, we like spending time with him, but for some reason, the more time we spend with him, the more cynical we get about things, or the more depressed we get, or the lonelier we get. And we can't really understand what it is. I mean, we know it's, it's not really Andy's fault. It's just there's something about him that the more time we spend with him, the more negative effect he has on our emotional health. Of course, don't take it personal. Andy's not a person. Andy is a metaphor for a screen. We invited screens into our lives. We wanted them to be in our families, but they have no filter. They tend to share images and content that we wish they really wouldn't share. We tend, they tend to dominate the conversation and dominate our attention, and they do have this weird effect on our emotional health. Now, in that metaphor, um, the book that I shared that out of last week was 10 years old, and they said we're spending an average of three hours a day on our screens. And I kind of poked fun at that, like that's nothing. Now, three hours a day is a bare minimum. I found an updated stat this week out of the book, uh, Reset Your Child's Brain, and she said it's more like seven and a half hours a day on our screens. And her research is five years old. So I'm not sure if that's still accurate. If you just think about how much time you have increased your participation with screen and engagement with screens. Think about how much that has changed in the last five to ten years. I mean, it's drastic. She quotes a stat in here that every 4.3 minutes we're tempted to check our phones. Every 4.3 minutes. It means like by the time I'm done speaking, you'll have wanted to check your phone seven to eight times by the time I'm done. And it's not, it's not just like we don't need the research, we don't need the stats. We know it. We've got our own stats, Right? Your phone will tell you how long you've been spending on it. There's an app on the iPhone called Screen Time. If you are feeling bold right now, you can pull it out and check it, all right? I know you're sitting close to people that you may not want to see your screen time, but if you're feeling bold, pull your phone out and check your screen time. Now, I don't know how it works on the Android. You might be able to use battery usage or something like that and kind of see some of the same information. But uh, you can go to Settings, and hit screen time, and it'll pull up a little screen that'll show you what you've spent on your phone. So far today, I've spent almost an hour on my phone 
Um, and I've been preaching most of the day in worship, but I spent, you know, 45 minutes of that was before I even got here this morning. Now, I'm going to show you my stats. And in, to be fair, I'm not going to show you last week's stats because I knew this sermon was coming. So last week was not that bad for me. I kind of, you know, I toned it down last week because I, you know, practice what you preach. And so, but I want to go back three weeks ago and just show you what they were. These are the unfiltered stats from my phone three weeks ago. And um, I'll show you a quick snapshots here. This is January 19th through 26th. So that week, I spent an average of four hours and 13 minutes a day on my phone. It was nearly 30 hours for the week. And then it breaks down, you know, see social networking's 11 hours and 17 minutes. Entertainment, 4 hours, 29 minutes. I'm not sure what the, the yellow or orange bar is. I think it's the Bible app, but I'm not 100% sure. Um, <laughs> it's not. Um, but 4 hours, that's a lot, isn't it? 4 hours a day. And then it'll track, and this one's the one I don't like at all, it'll track the number of times you pick your phone up. So on average, I picked it up to check it 113 times a day. That's a total of 700-something pickups, almost 800 pickups. Um, and Friday was my high. I almost got to 170. I don't know what was going on on Friday, but I was, I was checking the phone a bunch on Friday. And then I got notifications. You can scroll down to that, too. Uh, 73 notifications. That was an average a day. I feel like my notifications are not that bad because I only get notifications from four apps. I get text messages. I get my credit card uh, expenses when they hit. I get the weather app, and I get Life360. But still, those four are 73. If you've got Snapchat notifications, you blow that out of the water. 73 is like in an hour, right? Or you got Facebook or Instagram notifications. I mean, you can easily blow that out of the water. Now, you see those stats, and there's probably a couple different reactions to that. One reaction might be, why are you teaching this message again? Like, shouldn't we get somebody else to preach today that doesn't use their phone as much? And the other reaction could be, four hours a day? <laughs> Rookie. You know, <laughs> you ain't spending any time on your phone. Um, Reality is we spend way more time than we used to on our phones. So we spend way more time this year than last year on our phones or, or four years ago or five years ago. And it may not be that big a deal, right? Some people are even, you know, third reaction to this could be, so what? What difference does it make? Like, why do, why do I care if you picked up your phone 113 times a day or you looked at it four hours a day? What difference does it make? What, what does the Bible say about it? Nothing. You know, I mean, the Bible doesn't say anything about smartphone use or that kind of stuff. So what difference does it make? Well, the difference it makes is this. Whether we like it or not, or whether we're willing to admit it or not, our increased screen time has an effect on our emotional health and on our spiritual health. And I want to share just a few ways that it does. I'm going to use some research from a, a Dr. Victoria Dunkley who wrote this book, Reset Your Child's Brain. I've been working through that one. And uh, just, just, I'm just going to give three ways. There's more, but I want to give you three ways that our smartphones or our screens are changing us. And here's the first one. It depresses us. Here's what Dr. Dunkley says. The evidence linking overall electronics use and depression is substantial. And virtually all types of interactive screen time have been implicated. Internet usage is directly correlated with depressed mood, withdrawal or isolation, loneliness, and less parent-child interaction. 
and the highest users show the most severe symptoms. Use of social media, such as Facebook, is a risk factor for depression and dissatisfaction with one's life. Now, she goes into kind of the psychological research as why that is and some of the physiological research as to why that is, talks about the dopamine levels in the brain and the activity and all that kind of stuff. But you don't need science to understand this. How many of you have ever gotten depressed or felt lonely or felt worse about your life when scrolling through social media or Instagram, whatever it is? How many of you, like you're sitting in your room all by yourself and you're scrolling through social media and you start going, man, my life stinks. I mean, look, all, the, all these people are out here having fun and they're doing all this cool stuff and nobody said anything to me about coming to this thing. And of course, it was Valentine's Day last weekend. So, you know, now we got the, you know, everybody else has these great relationships and they all love their spouses and it's incredible and life is awesome and it's amazing. And I mean, how many of us have looked at it and like, and it doesn't start that way. We usually don't start. It usually starts with like, oh, I want to catch up and see what's going on or I'm just bored or, you know, whatever it is. So you go into the phone, you start scrolling but it can quickly spiral out of control. And depression can start setting in quickly with the phones. And it makes sense. Like, we, we want to say, you know, isn't it ironic? And I've said this before, and I think I was wrong when I said it. You know, isn't it ironic that uh, these phones that were designed to connect us make us more depressed? Isn't that ironic? Not really. Think about it. If somebody told you that they were lonely and they were depressed, would your advice to them be, well, I'll tell you what you ought to do. Go in your room by yourself and spend about four hours looking through social media. That'll cheer you up. You would never do that, right? That would, that would be terrible advice that you would give somebody. But that's, what, that's the way we do it ourselves. If we have to decide when we're depressed, we're going to go into the phone, deeper into the phone. So um, I'm sorry, people are texting me right now. It's confusing me because I'm wanting to look at it right now. <laughs> we'll get to that point in just a minute. Uh, but that's, it depresses us. And it just does. It's, it has that effect on us. Here's the way they put it in the Atlantic. Stephen uh, March put this this way. It's a lonely business, wandering the labyrinths of our friends and pseudo-friends' projected identities, trying to figure out what part of ourselves we ought to project and who will listen and what they'll hear. You know, our phones have taught us that it's possible to feel lonely even in a crowd. And it's possible to feel isolated even in a world of connection. And God didn't design us for isolation. God designed us for community. God created us to be in community. He said in Genesis chapter 3, verse 18, I think it is, it's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for people to be alone because we're created for relationship. And in the New Testament, it's full of all these one another passages, like you know, love one another, serve one another, rejoice with one another, mourn with one another. It's all about one another in, in God's kingdom. And phones sometimes make it a little bit more difficult to do that. I know that they can create some of that community as well. But I always say, if you don't have real community outside of the technology, then technology is no substitute for it. So that's one of the ways it changes us. Another way it changes us is it dehumanizes us. Here's another quote from uh, Dr. Dunkley. She says, does time spent behind a screen impact one's ability to relate face-to-face? -face? Mounting evidence suggests that it does. A study examining empathy score trends of college, college students from 1979 to 2009 found scores to be falling with a particularly sharp drop after the year 2000, right in line with the first generation of children who were born into the age of video games and computers. 
Much of social competence is learning how to read subtle cues in body language and facial expressions, and studies show that face-to-face contact is highly correlated with social well-being, while media use and media multitasking correlate with the opposite. What she's saying, in short, is that we're losing our ability to empathize with one another because we're losing our ability to see one another as fellow human beings. That's what I mean by it dehumanizes us. If you don't have empathy for one another, you don't see each other as human because empathy is one of the ways that we connect with one another. When we have empathy, we sit in your shoes. We experience your life. We feel your pain, and we have compassion, and that creates connection. The greatest example I've got of it is a couple weeks ago when Ebony and I were, were preaching on the stage here, when Ebony shared the experience of what it was like to be a mother trying to explain slavery or segregation to her children. I can tell you how many mothers were like, I felt that. When Ebony said that, I felt that. You felt that not just because she said it, but because you saw it. You could hear it in her tone of voice. You could see it in her body language. You could see the tears coming down her cheeks. I mean, you felt something. There was experience. If Ebony and I were having that conversation only through screens, can you imagine what that would have felt like? Because we wouldn't have been able to hear the tone of voice, and we wouldn't have seen the tears, and we wouldn't, have, we, we wouldn't be able to see the body language. But there's so much of our interaction with one another is happening solely through technology. There are people we are friends with that we don't know in real life. We only interact through social media. And that's not a bad thing, but just be real careful about assuming that the things they say to us on social media has some kind of sinister intent, which, when it may or may not. We're, we're very quick to read into things. You know, how many of you guys have gotten an email before, and you're like, I can't believe they said that to me. That was, oh, man, that was so passive-aggressive. or whatever. How do you know it was passive-aggressive? I mean, if they'd have said it where you could hear the tone of voice and catch their body language, you might have picked up on it. But how do you know electronically? It's really hard to tell. It makes it very, very difficult. And this lack of empathy creates a lack of seeing one another as human beings. I want to read you a quote from Brene Brown. This is in Braving the Wilderness. And this, uh, a friend of mine shared this on Facebook. And it, whew, um, here's what Brene says. Today we're edging closer and closer to a world where political and ideological discourse has become an exercise in dehumanization. And social media are the primary platforms for our dehumanizing behavior. On Twitter and Facebook, we can rapidly push the people with whom we disagree into the dangerous territory of moral exclusion with little to no accountability and often in complete anonymity. If you're wondering what she's talking about, she gives some very uh, pointed examples. If you're offended or hurt when you hear Hillary Clinton or Maxine Waters called the B word or the C word, you should be equally offended when, and hurt when you hear those same words used to describe Ivanka Trump or Kellyanne Conway. If you felt belittled when Hillary Clinton called Trump supporters a basket of deplorables, then you should have felt equally concerned when Eric Trump said Democrats aren't even human. When the President of the United States calls women dogs or talks about grabbing their body parts, we should get chills down our spine and resistance flowing through our veins. And when people call the President of the United States a pig, we should reject that language regardless of our politics and demand that discourse that doesn't make people subhuman. There is a line. It's etched in dignity. 
and raging, fearful people from the right and left are crossing it at unprecedented rates every single day. We must never tolerate dehumanization. And if our faith asks us to find the face of God in everyone we meet, that should include the politicians, media, and strangers on Twitter with whom we most violently disagree. When we desecrate their divinity, we desecrate our own and betray our faith. That is an ouch and an amen because Brene is preaching the gospel there. Every person we encounter online or face-to-face is another human being created in the image of God. We may disagree with their politics. We may disagree with their behavior, but they are fellow human beings. Regardless of what you think about President Trump or what you think about Nancy Pelosi, they are fellow human beings created in the image of God. We can disagree with their politics and their policies. We can disagree with things they say or their behavior, but we can't dehumanize them. When we dehumanize them, we cross a line. And as Christians, we should be the folks calling to recognize people's humanity because what did Jesus teach? Love your neighbor as yourself. You've got to love your neighbor in the same way you love yourself. And then he defined in the Good Samaritan, there's no one who's not your neighbor. We're that, there's nobody who's exempt from the command to love. Treat others in the way that you want to be treated. This is the greatest ethics of the Christian faith is to see other people as people. And technology sometimes makes it a little bit more difficult to do that. So we got to be careful here. And here's the last one. <laughs> I mentioned this one because I really am getting text, and it's not <laughs> folks in this church that are trying to aggravate me because I knew some of you were going to try that. But, uh, it's, I mean, it's people outside of the church that don't realize I'm preaching right now. But this is it. It distracts us. You think about how often, and I'm guilty as can be, and I'm going to regret saying this in the message because this afternoon I'm going to get hammered about there you are doing it again. Uh, think about how often we take our phones and when we sit down to have coffee with somebody or have dinner with somebody, what do we do with them? We don't leave them in the pocket. We pull them out. We put them right there. Just in case I get a text or something. You know, I'm here, I'm present, but in case, I, in case something else needs my attention. Or when we work, we kind of set them right there. Sometimes I'll work late at night and I'll have a screen in my lap that I'm working on. I'll have a screen that I'm watching and then I'll have this screen right beside it in case anybody wants to text me about anything. And, and these things do distract us, right? Because they're constantly, the notifications are constantly calling like, hey, you need to like this. Hey, you need to respond to this. Hey, you need to comment on this. Hey, you need to see this picture. Hey, I just posted about this. Hey, I'm waving at you. Hey, I'm this. I mean, they're constantly, we're getting distractions. We're getting notifications nonstop. And it is distracting. And you say, well, Jesus didn't say anything about smartphones. No, but he did say something about distractions. It's in the 10th chapter of Luke. Luke describes it this way. Jesus went to the home of Mary and Martha. And Luke says, Martha was distracted. Martha was distracted. She was distracted not by phones, but by all the preparations she had to make. But Mary was not distracted, and she sat at the feet of Jesus listening to him speak. Well, Martha got upset with Mary because Mary wasn't as distracted as she was. (laughs) You know, why don't you care about the same things I care about, Mary? And Jesus said this to her. And is this not a word for our distracted day and age? Here's what Jesus said to her, if you throw it up for him. Martha, Martha. I don't know why he said her name twice. Maybe to get her attention. And I wonder how many times he'd have to say our name to get our attention. Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. I think that could be a word for us. 
because we are worried and upset about many things. The more time we spend here, the more depressed we can get, the more dehumanizing behavior we can participate in, and the more distractions. And, but we get worried and upset about many things that really don't have much to do with our faith and our relationship with God. It really doesn't. The stuff that we get all torn up about on social media, some of it's just not that big a deal. I mean, Twitter is an outrage culture right now, and everybody's outraged about something. And it's really not that big a deal. Maybe this is Jesus' word to us. You know, you're worried and upset about many things, but there's really only one thing that matters. And that's him. So, you know, maybe there's some different way. And this is not one of these messages. I don't intend this message to be like a, you know, get rid of the phones. They're evil. They're of the devil and all that kind of stuff. It's not one of those messages. We're, I'm going to keep using my phone. You're going to keep using your phone. But if we could just be a little more conscious of it or aware of it or use the technology that it's given. You know, screen time, I mentioned that at the beginning. You know, there's a, you can set content and privacy restrictions on screen time. You ought to do that. For you and your kids, you can set it. You know, I don't want to see these websites, accidentally even, or intentionally. I don't want to see these websites. Uh, you can set downtime. You know, I want my phone to go down at 10 p.m. or 11 p.m. or whatever time it is, and, and I want it to turn off until 6, and then 6 I can get my stuff. You can put do not disturb on there. You know, you, all you got to do is swap it up and hit do not disturb, and you'll still get all the phone calls, you'll still get all the text notifications, you'll still get all the social media notifications, but you can look at them on your time. You don't have to see them when they pop up. You can, you can take time and just, you know, put that, you know, family dinner time, maybe flip up and put it on do not disturb, or when you got a work project or something, put it on do not disturb. There are ways to deal with it in, in the right way where we don't allow it to depress us and we don't allow it to to disconnect us with other humans. We don't allow it to distract us so much. Um, I didn't go into a lot of that in this message because, honestly, that's where Stacy Jagger is going to take us next week. So this is part one of Screens. I wanted to identify the problem. And then Stacy Jagger will be here next Sunday, and she'll be identifying the solution, at least one of the solutions. And I know she's written a book called The 30-Day Blackout, and I know the title of that book makes you feel like I am not coming <laughs> Sunday because I, I know what she's saying. She's saying give up your screens for 30 days, and that's a crazy lady, and I'm not going to listen to her, and I'm not coming. Um, <clears throat> she's not crazy, all right? She knows what she's talking about. I think she recommended this book to me because I've been, I, I sent an email to Renee and Stacy and Abby and several and just said, hey, what should I read for this series? And so I've been reading books that they recommended. But um, she's got some solutions for how we can kind of rein this back in in our lives. And whether you choose to participate in her solution or not, I think you need to hear what she has to say. And I'm looking forward to her, to her being here. So let me, let me pray about this and we're going to take up our offering and then we'll be dismissed, okay?